right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show we have Josh Caterer. You might know him from the Smoking Popes, Duvall, or his solo project. Josh has a new album out. It's called Space Sessions. It was shot live at Space, the venue, not the outside the earth. Space. Um, and what's really cool about it is it's an evolvement from, if you tuned into the, our last episode where Josh was on, at the hideout sessions, because that was a live streamed real deal event, you know, it was all in the moment. This, they got to record, take a take, analyze it, do it again, but um, all live nonetheless. And in this conversation, me and Josh kind of just talk about the process of, of this current record. In the, our first conversation, which came out a while ago, we really dive into his history. So if you're interested in that, I recommend checking out the first episode because we go deep. Josh is always fun. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I was glad to have another one with Josh, especially for this recent release. It's really cool. It's out on all streaming platforms. And we're going to listen to a track off it. This is At Last, Josh's take on it.
last space sessions. Um, all right, friends, before we get into this conversation, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool artists and sharing their insights with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Josh. Um, me too. So uh, last time uh, last time we were talking, the hideout sessions was in route from coming out. And now now you're doing a, uh, the new the new one is the space space sessions. I, I'm that trying is correct. To, uh, that was mostly me trying to pronounce it right, not not read a card or anything. But um, <laughs> but uh, that being said, so oh, yeah. this uh this batch of tunes is like like the hideout sessions was tight. This is like the next level of tightness. Like this is a because it was all live, yeah. Yes, it was all live, um, and we didn't. Uh, I mean, we didn't overdub anything, so it really is a live performance. And, uh, but we, I mean, we, we rehearsed a lot. We spent a lot of time tightening things up beforehand. And, um, in this, in this case, it, we, it wasn't quite the same as the hideout in that the hideout truly was happening live. Like it when we were playing, it was being streamed out in a, in a true in a true live stream. But this space sessions was pre-recorded, which meant that we went in and um, for for a, several of the songs we did more than one take, and we picked the best take, and then we included that in the um broadcast that was streamed later so it wasn't we you know like we 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 were watching the live stream along with everybody else because we had already pre-recorded it which gave us the advantage of um taking a couple of passes at the song and picking the best take but it is still absolutely true that what you are hearing on the album are single complete live takes that have not been overdubbed beautiful like it, well i think that that just being able to go back and look at it really really brought out everything because it was like next level from the hideout sessions um so with space spaces what where is it a venue is it an art gallery i didn't get the info on that oh yeah space is a, a music venue okay uh it's it's in evanston which is on the north side of chicago um, the room is, I think, a little bigger than the hideout. Uh, I don't know the exact capacity of, of either room, but I would say you could probably get 50 more people in space than you can in the hideout. But they're both pretty intimate venues. There's just a different vibe at space. Um, whereas, I mean, if you saw the, the video of, of like the hideout, it's pretty... Uh, it's pretty like earth tones in there. There's a yeah. lot of wood. There's uh, there's a big green sign, and there's like uh, Christmas lights hanging from the ceiling. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of got this endearing homespun warmth to it. Whereas space veers more towards a kind of. Uh, almost an elegant vibe where it's, it's darker in there. It's got, um, 
you know, some black curtains hanging up and, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a beautiful space. Those two clubs are aside from being similarly sized, they're, they're very different from each other, but they're both, uh, you know, a couple of my favorite places to see shows for different reasons. And, um, it was so cool just to have access to the place like we did to be able to go in there and record. Um, I don't know. It, it, it allowed us among, among other things, like in addition to the, the final product that we wound up with, it allowed us to kind of uh, connect with the venue um, in a special way. Like I feel, I don't know. I think this is something that musicians get when you go and you play clubs, like the, the, the place that you, like you develop a relationship with the place. Cause you feel like a, a, a venue has like a personality almost. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and so this allowed us to connect with that venue in a special way that we otherwise wouldn't have if we had just gone there and played a show. Definitely. No, it's cool because now it's part of it's part of the discography. It's part of when people may hear you for the first time. It may be that video or when people follow up, it may be. So now it's it's part of it's a it's a benchmark kind of a career uh, um, a staple or not staple um, snapshot. That's what I was looking for. Oh, totally. Uh, and like that's so going into a project like this. Um, was space uh, the first place you thought of for this next kind of like live endeavor or were you like kind of like because it, it sounds like hearing you describe the spaces which was I thought both very eloquently done um, you, you seem to very take take into a consideration what the audience is going to be seeing you guys performing in so yes. was there was spaces the space I, I keep saying spaces was space the place was that like just you knew right <laughs> away or did you kind of like had some other places in mind before like uh, no uh, space was the place like after <laughs> after we did the hideout sessions which um the reason why we picked the hideout as the first spot is because they were already doing a a virtual concert series that was pretty um pretty like well developed you know during the the lockdown of 2020 it for, from what i could tell the hideout was one of the first clubs in chicago to really get that going so quickly and to develop a, a um a pretty steady output of like virtual performances uh from their club they just had the um the videographer in place and they had their website set up to where um it could be easily accessed uh you know for whoever wanted to see it and so it was just sort of impressive like so so the hideout had it going on and i saw them do, do that and so they they were part of the inspiration in the first place to even do this project because i saw uh you know i was the depressed about not being able to play shows just like everybody was but then i saw the hideout oh, the hideout's doing all these virtual shows like we should do that let's get in on this thing that the hideout is doing so they were it was kind of a no-brainer that they were the first location and then 
when uh, I started thinking about, okay, where, where, where else would we do it? If we wanted to do a follow-up album, Space really was the next place that came to mind. Even though Space didn't have that kind of machinery in place, um, but having done one at the hideout, I was able to kind of utilize some of that. Like we, we contacted the same online company that, that hosts the, the virtual uh, streaming event that, um, that hadn't, I don't, I don't know if they'd done anything from, from that venue before, but they, they but they didn't have like a, a weekly, you know, regular output account kind of set up with space. So I had to coordinate that, but I knew that space was, one of my favorite places to to see shows. Um, I had, I think, played there once. I knew it was a place that I wanted to play at more. And so kind of selfishly, I was like, well, if I make a record there, they'll have to let me play there more often. <laughs> yeah. They'll remember me. They'll answer this email. <laughs> like, All right. Uh, that's cool. Like, it, it's... Uh, that resonates um, a lot, actually, because like um, when when the shutdown happened, uh, like me and a buddy who ran a who runs a um, a studio, we started doing streamed concerts out of his basement, and we yeah. uh, put together a week long benefit for this art gallery I work at called Negative Space, and part of it has a performance, it has like a stage, and um, so we did this week long concert of people streaming from their homes. And like yeah. just kind of trying to help. We had a GoFundMe to keep the place going through the shutdown. And uh, the last night culminated to like a concert in the venue with like the artist who who owns the place and like runs the nonprofit. Um, and like that, we did like multiple camera setups, and we learned how to how to get the full band stage into it and bounce between angles and stuff. And like we ended up making our our goal of five thousand dollars in a week to keep the to keep everything running for the next couple months and like uh we got so hyped up we're like how can we how can we uh how can we do other venues around cleveland and like it was kind of like that same process where we met up with the beachland ballroom and like uh the grog shop i don't know if you've played either of those two spots passing through um yes i have played the grog shop several times i love it yeah awesome so we, we were doing concerts to help them keep going as well, and we ended up teaming up with other people that were running, like, the same type of deal, like an online hosting thing. And, like, but it was really cool, and that it developed not only, like, that love for this venue, like, and it's interesting what, the, just as a musician, what the venue is. Like, it's this kind of beacon of opportunity, like, at, at one point. Like, you can open up for for blank at this place because they you you know the guy because you did that one night on a tuesday and they really liked it and uh -huh. like, it's just a it's a spot to like kind of hone in so that yes. that idea of having a relationship with these venues and like is really that really hits home um yeah and and now that we're sort of exploring that idea i, I part of it is that i have heard about certain venues closing down, like uh, just all over the country, you know, I'll, I'll like hear that, uh, you know, a place like Slim's in San Francisco, like 
shut down, went out of business. And uh, I'm like upset about that. I, I feel like a, like a friend died. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I just, I just found out about one the other day, this place called the Lookout Lounge in Omaha that we've played at several times and had some good shows there. And it just, uh, it, it just kind of hurts <laughs> that, yeah. that that place is closed down. And like those, you know, the last time I played there was the last time I will ever play there. That really makes me sad. And it's, it's one of the casualties of the pandemic. I know that, you know, a lot of different um, types of businesses have been impacted and people in, in all across the country in different lines of work have been negatively impacted by it. But there is something so stark about the way that it hit uh, the music industry. Because in, in a lot of other cases, you know, people's uh, ability to to do what they do was um, reduced or you had to modify it like you know restaurants couldn't do in-person seating but they could do you know curbside stuff like you could drive up and pick it up or you you, you know deliveries and stuff like that but but music venues had to absolutely shut down for you know pretty much a year um and a, a, a lot of places were not able to recover from that and a lot of people who were involved in that industry have had to you know reassess and and um figure out <laughs> different paths to take in life in order to survive so you know people who were full-time musicians uh, we're not able to do that anymore. Um, so it's just, it's just catastrophic seismic impact that it, that it had on the music industry. So, yeah, no. And it's I like to have that place to it. it I don't know. It's part of the band in a way like the, the know that you, if we use the grog shop, for example, the, the, that stage has hosted so many things that have altered people's lives and mm -hmm. like, and yeah, like to to adapt to the pandemic needs, like where people can't be there. Well, you need to do the streaming thing, and like to do that, you need to know how to work that. When you're when you're a person that knows how to bring people in the door or out of the door or work the night, so you know if you start at this time, that we'll be able to pay the rent tomorrow. <laughs> like they're all kind of like hanging in there by a shoestring in good times. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like right. So like to try to like alter it like that where okay no even if you're streaming there less people are going to come because there's already the, the, the uh, steps as soon as there's like a click here read this you start to lose people and mm -hmm. like uh, that's what that is and like and to be the person who knows how to work a night and get someone in and out and how bands need whatever the the live experience needs it's not the same thing as like why won't this camera connect what do you mean? Like, yes. I can't, I need more bandwidth. What? Like, it's a total different. What do you mean? We have internet here. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. 
It's such a that's nut- true. Yeah. And plus, you're sort of um, you're like competing. Yeah. On a different on a different scale when when you're trying to present things for streaming. Um. You are presenting things through a medium that everyone presents things through. Whereas if you're, uh, if you have a club like the grog shop, um, it's a physical place that exists in a spot where nothing else exists. And there's nothing quite like the grog shop anywhere really near the grog shop. I mean, there are other clubs like that, you know, that, that sized club all over the country, but the grog shop is the, uh, you know, the cool small club for that area. So if you live around there, you know, that if you want to go out on a, you know, a Friday night and see a show and have that experience where you're, in a group of people listening to music and, and uh, you know, being part of a, like a collective uh, exchange of, of energy and ideas and everything that goes into, to, to having a concert experience. Like you, you, uh, you have to go to the grog shop for that. And that's, so they're not really competing with anything. Right. But if the grog shop is going to, um, broadcast a virtual show well then the the people that are the consumers of that are sitting in their house looking at a screen which is how they consume everything else so now they're they're like well would i rather you know this sort of time that i would spend or money that i would spend to stream something um do i want to put it towards that grog shop thing or do i want to put it towards uh you know, seeing mm. some other sh- concert that's coming from somewhere else that I would experience in the same way, then it's not necessarily going to be any more fulfilling to me to have it come from the grog shop because I'm not going to be connecting with anyone anyway. Right. You know? Yeah. No, definitely. I'm just, I'm just here at home. So it's like, um, it's very difficult. <laughs> it is. And like, it even put putting in the concept of like that, like, well, am I going to put money towards a thing that's okay? They they were able to get cameras up there, and my experience is fairly flat. Or am I going to put my my uh, my money towards like a film that spent their whole years to get this image right, and it's presented in a way where it, you that's how you get to that. Like, you don't watch Star Wars, uh, you don't go to Star Wars. Well, I guess maybe now you can, but like. Um, but before you would have to watch it and have to watch it. And that's how you got that experience. And that was the mm-hmm. only experience of it is seeing yeah. it. Like that's a, I wonder if that really put like a, like people who are really in like theater, they're like, ah, movies, have fun with your talkies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. If like that, that, that was their experiences being there in the theater type deal. And like, yeah, you can watch a movie if you're bored, but like, it's yeah, it is. That's a very uh, good point with that because each venue has that atmosphere, and like that's that's what's being lost. So when you, when you say that you feel like a friend has passed when you hear a venue closing because that that is like in essence it's gone. 
and like maybe it opens up and becomes a new venue but i, I don't know it's it's that i don't think that it's such a tough gig as it as is um but all that being said so when you went into this you were really thinking about like that the visual experience too is what i was hearing um, yeah and since you were you know talking about camera work and production value and things like that i will bring up the fact that um the when we did the space sessions uh recording one of the one of the other advantages of pre-recording it was that we were able to do a lot more with the cameras and we could uh we could edit things after the fact and spend more time on the editing whereas the uh the hideout sessions just had some cameras set up and uh from a few different angles to kind of capture the performance and they would just switch from one camera to the other, but the cameras themselves weren't, um, moving. Right. There was one person who kind of like would, uh, you know, pivot one of the cameras that was on a tripod, but there was, there wasn't anybody with like a, a camera on their shoulder who was actually like, uh, moving around. But for the space sessions, there were because I, I brought in a different film crew for that and we had um a friend of mine uh brian bouchelt who is uh, a video director uh he agreed to come in and and oversee the project and he recruited a couple people to uh to be you know camera operators um my wife actually operated the camera for some of the songs so she's listed uh cool they're in the credits as having captured some of it as the camera operator but then we had all this footage from all these different angles and we um and you know i was part of the process of sitting down with with our editor and going through like picking which shots to use and uh we could put a lot more into the production value so i felt like the the videos that came out of it were a lot more entertaining Right and kind of kind of satisfying to watch, which was cool. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's interesting because like that movement, like now I um I know you've done um, videos and stuff with the Popes and like I'm sure you've had to kind of sit behind that same type of production before, but like for the, for something like a stream when you what we would do is we would have a mover right, and we'd have one person move the cameras and follow the action and bounce between some stands, and mm -hmm. like because the stands. Just like you're saying, it's flat. You can't really. Maybe someone can turn it to kind of capture some action, but really, the mover is where it's at, and they're following the action, and it's the trick behind that. Um, we recently right. uh, did a a week long benefit. So at the school I work at, one of my uh, coworkers had some pregnancy complications, and I did yeah. a I put together. It was five venues, twenty one bands, and uh, it was all to go help out her and her medical cost, and then we got a bunch of knitted goods for the NICU um, and like I was being the mover and I fell off a stage and sprained my ankle and then my girlfriend had to do the whole <laughs> all the moving but so <laughs> she got to get the credit too yeah and then they had to do a fundraiser for you for your <laughs> medical talk <laughs> luckily it wasn't that bad <laughs> so, but it, it's great that being able to follow the action and like kind of 
experience it in a different way when you critically kind of think about it. Like, I feel a lot of times when you're watching a video or, or a movie or something, you're kind of just experiencing stuff as it happens. And you don't put too much forethought into why they did that or what, how, or what you're following. You're just kind of following it. So, like, kind of was this ex- uh, experience of, like, kind of making that action come to life different from maybe um, Pope's experiences? Or were, were you kind of ready for this and kind of knew how to capture an action on of a, of a live performance and what kind of is the angle of that? Well, the experience that I'd had with it before was uh, editing the Pope's a reunion concert that took place in 2005, which got filmed. It was our first show back after a seven year hiatus that ended up coming out as a live DVD. And uh, that was similar in that there were, there were multiple cameras in the room that captured a bunch of footage. And then I sat in on the editing process. Although back then, um, that they didn't quite have the technology that they do now. So there were like different monitors. Like I had to look at separate monitors to see the footage. Mm, okay. And, um, you know, pick, I could tell the guy, like, I like this over here, like now cut to this one. And, uh, but you know, now of course you can get it where you're, you're looking at a split screen all on like a, all on the same screen. Yeah. So all available footage is concentrated into one space and the guy can just click, click, click here or there. So it makes it a lot easier, but it's um, essentially the same. And I think that editing is a, is a fascinating process. It really, it really is amazing how much, impact that has on how you perceive what's happening um to you know to to pick to pick moments to cut from one shot to another um you know affects the affects your overall perception of the of the whole event whereas like if you just if you just had one camera at the back of the room and you were just watching that the whole time um, I don't know. It wouldn't be particularly exciting. <laughs> right, right. So is it... Is but, it... I don't know. It's weird because having one camera at the back of the room is... You you could argue that that's more realistic. Right. Um, except for it ends up being far more boring than if you were actually there. If you're actually there you only have one point of view unless you're running around the room, which you're not really doing. <laughs> yeah. No one would invite you back. <laughs> right. But somehow I think having multiple cameras and movement, uh, even though it it's, isn't, isn't visually as literal, it's, it somehow is able to infuse more of the excitement of the live experience um, through, through movement, because when you're at a show, there are things about being in that space, uh, the space where the, where the performance is being created 
that that have a kind of uh i don't know a, a visceral excitement to them uh that you that you, is difficult to convey on a screen and so you, you you need to do things through the editing to sort of help that along right right yeah, it's because it, you're right. When you when you see a show, you're just watching from that one viewpoint. And like, I, I've often been in like concerts where you get a bad spot, and you're like, you know what? If I was watching this in a video, I bet that would look sweet with like a camera looking up at that sax player or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, but it is. It's the or it's the guy next to you bumping into it, or it's the person getting hyped up that they're hitting their jam, and the, you you're the, it's that whole experience of it, and like. It there's that kind of movement already happening around you, so that makes sense why you would have to like amplify it there. Like, uh, so do you when you like kind of looking at it, are you following like like the as actions happening? Like, is that kind of a rule? I don't know. I want to say like I don't. How's a good way to convey that? You know, like is it following who's playing what? If it's just a kind of like a song where there's like not like a particular person shining through is it multiple angles of like the singer like it's 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 interesting how like how you even start to do that like i've noticed a lot of people just kind of circle the room and cut to who's doing something and circle back yeah like part of it is that you want to have somewhat well-balanced coverage of all the people on stage um anchoring things of course with like the prevalent action so like you you want to have maybe a little more coverage of whoever is singing uh the lead vocal at any given time but um there's cool you know things that some of the musicians will do um along the way that you want like you know for for me sitting in on an editing session is a, a lot of me saying a lot of things like oh that drum fill was awesome can you can you cut to the drummer can you go back and like make sure that you're showing him doing that because like i want people to you know like yeah appreciate that so, somehow seeing it makes you consciously aware of it yeah even though you're still you're still hearing everything that happens but like the the camera can direct your brain to to um emphasize or de-emphasize certain things depending on what you're showing and if if you know if the drums or bass are doing something awesome at a particular moment um or you know i would look through and, and see like Oh, that's just a really cool shot of, of of John on bass. Like I like the angle there. It just sort of he looks very rock and roll right there on that shot. So just just show that. Um, that makes sense. There's this, yeah. There's a a video. Um. For for one of the songs, uh, we did a version of the song at last. Uh for the it's gonna, yeah. it's on the Fit sessions album and um during the video there's this one particularly beautiful shot that i i loved and and made a point of like including it uncut in the video and it, it starts over on one side 
by the horn players. And it just kind of slowly pans across them, across everyone on the stage. And, uh, and then kind of pivots so that you're looking um, the other direction. It's, it's hard to describe it's hard to describe <laughs> it but if you watch the video because we're releasing the video for atlas it's one of the um you know videos that were that we, that we have isolated and we're using it sort of as a promotional thing that we're putting up on youtube and stuff and you'll you'll see what i'm talking about there's this one long unbroken shot that ends up covering the entire stage and has some nice movement to it and uh it's really just well done and it has like a almost a cinematic quality to it that i thought was really impressive um and again i've got to give credit to um my friend brian bouchelt who was the director of all the video uh footage uh he's, he's really gifted he does a lot of work with like he was a videographer for mxpx and has done some of their live stuff and some other cool bands that's rad um that cover that that that, your take of a at last i can talk today i promise josh i can i can talk it was have you been drinking i have not i don't drink it's it's a little early (laughs) um but uh it is a little early it's too early now but um (laughs) that cover is really well done and what i really liked about your take on it is like it's an upbeat version You, you hear a lot of people kind of like stick to the stick to the quota of the slow like you know six eight version like i thought that was really cool to hear it in in the horns i don't know if you work with horns before but with that and um i think it was something stupid that they're also on they were just in the pocket like that horn section was really tight and like the lines they came up for especially with a at last that like that was really catchy and that was a cool uh, a cool take on it is that like something the the popes or something you've uh, kind of messed around with before this session or was that kind of like taking a taking a standard and being like let's do it let's upbeat it like i don't know what was the process with a uh, um those two covers i guess um at last and something stupid um the the popes have done a lot of uh upbeat up tempo covers of old songs um but we have not done anything with horns before the the inclusion of a a horn section was something that uh our drummer john parents suggested that when we were when we were working on the hideout sessions he said why don't we have max crawford come in and, and play uh you know he could do a trumpet solo on the song just to you know he came in and did uh, a trumpet solo on need you around it actually ended up being a flugelhorn he because he came and brought a trumpet but he, he felt like flugelhorn would suit the song a little better and uh <laughs> and that was that was great it 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 just lent such a different kind of uh, for me unexpected tonal quality to the project that was really exciting and i and and max is super talented 
And uh, so we, we wanted him to be involved in this project as well. But then it was Max's suggestion. Um, why don't we, especially because I sent him a demo of At Last. And he kind of said what you were saying, which was that he loved the fact that it was, um, that we've transformed it into a completely different song. And um, the, the rhythm that we're taking, the, the rhythmic approach that we're taking really brings a totally different energy to it. And, and he said, <coughs> he's like, I could see this working with like a horn section. W would you be open to, you know, having more horn players on it? And he's like, I, I could, you know, we would get a saxophone player in there. And I, I originally was like a little resistant to the saxophone idea because I have mixed feelings about saxophones yeah. in, in, in rock and roll. Um, but he assured me that it, he would not be taking a rock and roll saxophone approach. He would be taking like an R and B uh, saxophone within a uh, within a section part. He was like, you know, like listen to like uh, uh, who does in the midnight hour? Is it Wilson Pickett? Yeah, Wilson Pickett. Like there's a there's a horn part on that song that has multiple horns and it's like a trumpet and a sax or it might, it might be two trumpets and a saxophone but the way that the saxophone fits in sonically with those other horns it, it brings a uh, a really cool dimension to it when the, with the, the way that they're playing it's like tightly connected i mean they're all all the horns are playing the same part um but it's but it's three different horns so it's like three different it's like playing a guitar through three amps at once you know it's gonna right. have like this broad spectrum of of tones that you're getting and they're all locked in in lockstep with each other so um yeah, that's one of the things i love about this project is like bringing in different different people to collaborate on things and just sort of broaden the spectrum of of what I would usually do. Um, the the, the uh, song Something Stupid actually does not have horns on it, but that is a, a song where I do a duet with my daughter. Oh, no way. Oh, cool. So she, uh, you know, played the, the role of Nancy Sinatra. Right. And uh, it was so fun to have her be involved in the project we sing a lot at home and have been doing so since she was just a little girl and i don't think i ever realized until fairly recently how similar our vocal styles are as far as um, the way that we enunciate um and the way that our voices kind of lock in together yeah i guess it's it's what they would refer to as a blood harmony when you kind of uh, spend so much time just like you know around another person kind of singing just day in day out like we walk around the house kind of harmonizing with each That's other cool. wow um, 
so it wasn't until we started doing these like Facebook live uh, songs during, during the lockdown. Uh, she and I would, would do songs, you know, just various covers, whatever we felt like playing, we would play those on Facebook live. And then when I watched those back, I would notice that, man, she, she's, uh, she's singing just like me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like it's it's amazing, and I don't even know if she's consciously doing that. That's just how she learned to sing, right? Um, and so that kind of comes across, I think, in in our version of something stupid. What? And it's an interesting harmony too, because she, you know, when she figured out that the Nancy Sinatra part, like the the Frank's vocal line kind of moves around, but Nancy's part just kind of hits this one note over and over for most of the song. Yeah. Um, and then that creates almost like an atonal quality. Sometimes it's a very interesting harmony. It's an interesting, interestingly written harmony, I think. Right. Right. I wonder, I wonder if it's because he kind of had that, uh, um, I don't know if it's the uh, trying to find a harmony for like a kind of a lower speaking kind of the crooning thing to it, or if it's like a like other harmonies. I'm trying to think that do that are kind of like a Garfunkel, right? There's a lot of if you hit the one bit, you can follow it, or because she keeps that tone right that allows him to move. So I, that'd be a really interesting like theoretical study on that, <laughs> like yeah. to dive into that. Um, and uh, yeah, with the horns I meant, but it was still like an upbeat cover, um, uh, upbeat yes. take on it. But that's so cool. Um, another like, another like, it's kind of like an accent in a way, right? Like it just like if you're from a certain area, um, so like her, her singing approach, growing up around you would be like kind of growing up in a certain area of a town, just like you just talk like whoever's around you. And I feel like so much of music <laughs> is kind of like that. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, if your exposure to singing is you, Josh, that would be like, well, when I when I need to sing a, a, a something that has an A in it, you know, like, it, you know what I mean? Like, not an A note, but an A sound. Um, so that makes sense. And that has to be like, I don't know, I, that has to be super, super exciting on your end, like, to be able to share that experience and, like, hear it come back to you in a way. The yeah, I never thought of it in terms of having like a regional accent. Uh, it's like if you're if you're from, you know, the Midwest, and you go to the South. Clearly, the people who live down there are the ones who have the accent, right? <laughs> you know, I'm just talking normally. I don't have an accent. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. But uh, it would make sense that it would pan off musically too. But like, yeah, similarly, like if if uh, if she grew up learning to sing with me, then she would just be like, "Well, this is how you sing." Right. <laughs> it's not a way of singing; it's just singing. You know. Yeah, that's so cool. That's exciting. But I think that applied also to the Smoking Popes um, in the way that we actually play, because my brothers and I grew up playing together. And uh, and so we developed a similar strumming pattern, which I noticed years later 
watching us on video, like once a song would get going, there were parts of the song where if you if you looked at the three of us across the front of the stage, like our our right arms that were doing the strumming uh, would be moving like identical, huh. identic identically. <laughs> um, that's, I don't know. It's that's... like a genetic thing, but we all kind of were learning at the same time. We were all breathing the same air when we learned how to do it. So. Right. Well, it's it's also kind of another way video shows you something you may like you appreciate seeing. You're like, oh, we we are doing that, or all that that bass lick is cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. That's like why sports teams watch the footage to see. You know, it's like when you're doing it, you're not aware of everything, but when you can watch it from an almost objective point of view, you're like, aha. I see it now. This, this right. is, and here's, and here's how we should strategically modify that to make it even better. Was it um the kind of yeah no it's in that it, it's weird because you you experience it in the moment and like oh that felt good that didn't feel good so to really be able to critically analyze it like you're saying it's it's crucial to like advancing yourself and um just the, I guess in the band's context the whole thing in general. Um, uh, on the t- I talked with your um with your bass player John uh, mm-hmm. about his project with the Hush Drops, yeah. And um, so well, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about it a little bit. How'd you come and how'd you meet John? How did I meet John? I don't remember when I met John. He's a person that I've always sort of known about because he's been in bands. I mean, Hush Drops have been around a long time. And uh, we just were both part of the Chicago music scene and our our paths crossed now and then over the years. And I'm pretty sure we, we played on some bills together. I remember maybe 10 years ago, eight or 10 years ago, doing a solo uh, a solo performance with him. Um, he was just doing, I mean, he's got some, in addition to Hush Drops, he's got like some solo material out there that he's released under the name John San Juan. And he was doing a John San Juan set. Um, and that, that we played with. And, and I just, uh, I don't know. I've always, I've always known him, but we were sort of acquaintances, but he was a person who I always thought was just incredibly talented. Like I've always thought that like watching him play was fascinating because he's, he's left-handed and he, uh, he'll take a guitar that's strung in a Hmm. right-handed way and just flip it over. So right away, it scrambles my brain to even watch it because I I can't right <laughs> I can't flip that over in my own mind. So I don't understand. And then he also plays a lot of you know what I would have to describe as jazz chords, like crazy chords with different intonations in there that I don't know how to play. So. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing it and I can't picture how to make that chord, 
and I also am looking at his hand and I still can't <laughs> picture how to make that chord. So he has always seemed like a musical enigma, like a man from another world. Uh, and so uh, I just thought it would be inspiring to have him involved. Um, and I didn't, I know that he and John Perrin knew each other, uh, but they hadn't played in a band together. So it's, there's always a, a little bit of a question mark when you bring together musicians who haven't played in bands together before. Like, how is that chemistry going to be? Um, but they're both incredibly talented and have like similar sensibilities about things. And so the very first time we got together and started working on anything, uh, it immediately felt like a, like a band to me. They, they felt instantly like a cohesive rhythm section that were on the same wavelength and locked in with each other. Wow. That's, that's... Which is so exciting to play yeah. with. And I would say, you know, I, I described... San Juan as being sort of, you know, like he plays jazz chords, like that. There, there is um, a, a quality of jazz playing that is kind of exploratory and uh, improvisational, and both he and John Perrin have that. Although I, I don't, you know, I don't think that what we're doing ends up sounding jazzy per se, but I, it, it does to me have that. Um, that quality of uh, of inspiration and exploration where where like at any moment um, the musicians involved are going to be trying to fill in the space with something interesting and and something expressive you know there's like uh, when i listen to those guys play it's it's like there's never a dull moment you know yeah. They're doing they're doing something worth paying attention to at any point in the song. Well, that's that's magic that bring the it's 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 magic when you see that expand the song like you're saying like there's a certain musician that wants to kind of like serve themselves in a way and make their trademark in like a tune, but they'll be working with a crew that helps make the tune have that as a unit, which is mm -hmm. what you've been describing. That's that's cool. John, because I when I dove into the hush drop stuff, I get that jazzy thing you're talking about. They have that tonality. It's like a, it's it may not necessarily be like upper extensions or whatever, but like there's this they're they're harping on a ninth or something. There's something in there in some tunes that just give it that space. Did you yes. um did you work with Joe at all? No. Okay. I didn't. Um. He seemed to he work with also, everybody, so that's what I was asking. I know. I'm sort of surprised that that never happened, and I'm sad that I didn't get the chance to. He's another person who I had kind of seen around, and so I knew I, I knew who he was, but um, we didn't uh, we didn't really connect. I mean, that's also true of of you know my relationship with John San Juan and John Perrin is that we uh, up until up until the year 2020, I would have said that I, I sort of know those guys, or I would have put them in the category of 
acquaintances that I knew from the music scene, but, um, but not necessarily, you know, these guys are my, my friends, but, um, during the course of us, you know, working on this project together, um, I've developed such a, a connection with these guys. I, and, and such a, um, uh, just a love for them. I, I, I consider them a couple of my dearest friends now. Um, and I, I think that part of that, and I've talked to, you know, them about this as well, but like a, a big part of that wasn't specifically musical. It had to do with the fact that I, last year in, uh, in November of 2020, uh, I got COVID mm. and I was, I was laid up for a couple of weeks with it. And the, and the, the second week, like it got pretty bad. Like I had, um, I don't know. It wasn't, I didn't wind up in the hospital, but like I, if it had gotten any worse, like I, I would have gone like it, like for, for several days there, I had a fever that would not go away. And for a couple of days I, I was hanging around at like, 102 103 Jeez, fever yeah. it got up to 1035 at one point and I, I was worried and i like contacted this other friend of mine who is an er doctor and i was asking him if i should go in and he kind of talked me through some things that were that were helpful as far as like the over-the-counter medication i was taking but all of that to say that during my experience of having covid uh, and I'm quarantining and I'm, I'm not leaving the house and, you know, different people that I know are just kind of reaching out to me and, you know, asking me how, how I'm doing. But the display of consistent support and concern that came from these two guys that I was now in a band with uh, was particularly meaningful to me, like Every single day without fail, I would hear from these guys. And uh, it meant a lot to me. It, it, it had this like incredibly uh, encouraging uh, and strengthening effect on me to know <laughs> that these guys were these guys like cared and they were plugged into what I was going through. And uh I think it, it solidified a lifelong friendship. Like even if we, if our, if this particular band, you know, dissolved tomorrow and we all went our separate ways musically, uh, these guys would continue to be a couple of my most valued friends, probably from here on out. That's because they're just, they're just, they're just beautiful human beings. I don't know if you got that sense from interviewing John San Juan, but um, he's a, uh, a uniquely wonderful person definitely and like the it's beautiful that because i i also got COVID, and like when you when you're sitting there and you're you you're isolated from everyone the only thing you kind of have to live on is like the check-ins a little bit you know because you don't want to yeah, yeah. be by anyone and i imagine you and your family that had to be like it, insanely stressful just one to make sure yourself is okay but just to get away get away don't come by you know what i mean like it's so hard to like 
keep that distance when you kind of need assistance and like to get through that with those phone calls that would come in mean so much more and resonate so much more deeply and like that's beautiful and john john was a fun interview and it was super like he was a super sweet guy and when we talked about you he just like lit up and was so clearly that that love and compassion is there and um mm. And I think that comes out in these re recordings, even though that there's multiple takes, they're still tight and like everyone's supporting each other. It's beautiful. Yeah, um, another, the kind of, did you ever meet John Lankford? Are you cool with him? <laughs> uh, I'm cool with him. I, uh, I feel like we've been on the same bill maybe a couple of times. I remember this one thing that, I was involved in that was like um an acoustic performance where like like a half dozen different artists did short acoustic sets um like at a i don't know where it was but he was one of them so i've seen him perform once or twice and i love you know i think the mekons are cool i i saw them play at uh at the Metro at one point too. I think they did. I was there on a new year's Eve where the Mekons were playing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with John Langford. Yeah, me and, uh, me and, uh, John dove into John Langford. I was like, I wonder how it's such a small scene. Um, all right. I got, I, Josh, I super appreciate your time. I got two more questions. Um, okay. one being, I've read about this show that happened in Cleveland with the popes and dinosaur jr. Oh, yeah. So can you dive into that one? Um, I don't specifically remember the show in Cleveland. I do, rec I do have an overall impression of the tour that we did with Dinosaur Jr. It was kind of a short tour. I think it was like a week-long tour where we did five or six shows in a week with them. And I, I remember sort of um, having the privilege of like watching some of their sound checks and then watching them perform every night and just sort of uh, that's that's one of those bands where if you if you get to if you get to do any dates with them, you know, you you watch their entire set every night, <laughs> which we've you know, that is not always the case. Sometimes you get thrown together with an artist and you, you sometimes you watch them but you're like oh, i can i can miss this one but um <laughs> but with dinosaur jr um you you watch every set and and then um just kind of you hang around and sort of try to try to soak in whatever atmosphere is there and like we didn't I, we didn't really have any conversations. I mean, they were, they were pretty uh, reclusive. I understand that, that Jay Maskus is uh, a fairly introverted person. Right. And, and he definitely kept uh, to himself and you would just walk by, you know, their, the, the backstage area, they would always have the door closed, but um there was always the, the incredibly fragrant aroma of, uh, of marijuana <laughs> wafting through the backstage area pretty consistently. So, um, 
he just kind of had his little medicinal time going on before they played. And uh, the only actual direct communication that we had with them is that after the last show of the tour was in Minneapolis, we played at First Avenue in Minneapolis. And uh, after the show, we went, you know, I, I asked our, uh, it's not like I just walked into their dressing room and knocked and said, Hey guys, we, we asked, uh, our tour manager at the time to connect with their people to see if it was okay if we came in and, you know, met them and kind of thanked them. And that was, that was approved. And so we got to go in to uh dinosaur juniors <laughs> dressing room and just mascus was just kind of sitting on this couch and uh, i remember walking over there and saying to talking for i don't know i did it's not like i rambled on forever but i i had maybe like 30 seconds worth of like sort of uh grateful gushing to like hey man this has been great like thanks so much for having us along it's been great just to be part of this and to see you play i've liked your music for so long and you know that kind of stuff yeah yeah and i remember just kind of going on like that for about 30 seconds or so and and then stopping and then he just says some he just said one sentence i wish i remember exactly what it was um it was something like, yeah, well, thanks for coming along. <laughs> and uh, that was it. Because <laughs> uh, I read that they play, Jay played drums with you guys. So maybe this was a, someone wrote this and totally had it wrong. But uh, that's why I brought that up, that he apparently on the Cleveland show, he hopped on a kit or something with y'all. No, no, I don't. Think, I don't think. I don't think that happened. <laughs> Debunked right here. <laughs> no, well, like what did happen was that sometimes, um, he would hop on the drum kit, and his drummer then would like, they would sort of rotate where his drummer would like. Uh, oh, where they would switch. Switch over to the bass. Mascus would get on the drum kit, and his and the bass player would switch to guitar, and they would sing a song like that. So you'd get to see you'd get to see Jay Maskus play drums on like one or two songs, and it was always like really super cool because he's like one of the greatest rock drummers alive. He never played with us though. Okay, no. so that was what I read, but maybe someone that's what they meant to write. Interesting, or maybe that's why I just was read spreading rumors for too long. But um, my last question being, we've been talking about venues and their importance and like what it means to like be in this place to be inspired was there like with your musical development because we've talked about how you guys did a lot of house shows at the beginning and really kind of gained your 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 go from that but there was was there a venue in particular that you saw a show or this this musical idea of being able to convey yourself musically became like a, a something to strive for yeah I well, can I expand the answer to have two venues? Yeah, totally. Because you because can say the, nine. <laughs> the first one 
that comes to mind is the Metro. Okay. Um, in, in Chicago, uh, there's a venue called the Metro that, that fans of the smoking post music will be familiar with because we've recorded uh, a couple of, a couple of live albums there, but that was the venue that, um, you know, some of the first concerts that we saw were there and definitely a handful of concerts that were officially life-changing for us. We saw at the Metro, like the first time I saw Iggy pop perform was at the Metro. Um, you know, I saw, I saw, um, the screaming blue messiahs play at the Metro back in the like late eighties. And, uh, this band called the Godfathers. I don't know if you remember them, but like some of these shows were just uh, game changers for us. That that like that was a place that we aspired to. Like it was such a it was such a cool venue, and the shows there that we saw were so awesome that it was like, oh, maybe someday if we if if we got really you know big or things went really well for us maybe someday we could play at the metro it was like a a dream somewhere on the horizon yes but in the more immediate there was a a punk club called mcgregor's in elmhurst illinois that used to have all ages punk shows and that was the first time i went to a show and thought like this is really fun and I can do this. Mm. Like I, I, I walked out of there saying, Oh, we can play there. I just have to, I have to find out who books there because mm. like, it just seemed really accessible in a cool way. The, the band that I saw there was apocalypse Hoboken. Nice. And, uh, they were like, they, as a band had that effect on me too, where it was like, their performance is great i'm really inspired by it but i also find it very accessible like it made me it it made me say like i i can do that not like i could perform exactly like them because they're i mean they have their own unique style of performance but i was like they're just guys you know yeah and you ended up doing work with them right yeah i was actually joined their band for about nine months and we did a, an EP together. Nice. But um, yeah, but Elmhurst then, you know, the Pope's played there a lot. Um, and we played, we got to play with uh, a bunch of cool bands. We did a show there with Jawbreaker one time. Sick. We played there a few times with Screeching Weasel and like, I don't know, a handful of other punk bands that you would know of but like it was that was very like um entry level sort of develop develop our fan base so to speak and uh so that by the time we did get an opportunity to play at the metro like you know we had you know we brought a bunch of people with us who were our fans from uh, from McGregor's, That's right? Cool. Which is yeah. something, which is something that made the the owner of the Metro take notice of us because the, the first time we played there, 
you know, when they they were opening it up for like kind of DIY shows, punk shows, you know, on like Wednesday nights or whatever, and they they weren't usually that well attended. But you know, we we brought a couple hundred people with us uh, who were were sort of already familiar with us from McGregor's. So like, it sort of made it made Joe Shanahan who owned the Metro kind of like uh, ask, you know, what's, what's up with these guys? They got a thing going on. <laughs> so, so he checked us out and then that led to a relationship with him where he ended up becoming our manager when we got signed and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, those, and, and I guess that's the, the long and winding answer to your questions that those two clubs, the Metro and uh, McGregor's, were kind of very special and pivotal, important clubs to me. And McGregor's is gone. They went out of business years ago. But mm. the Metro is still there. Thank God. <laughs> that's beautiful. And it's because that's last time we talked, we dove in probably starting there with like uh, your kind of your career. Um, so this is kind of a really good spot to leave off on. But like, um, was the Metro so this one? This would of, be like a like a prequel yeah this would be the prequel this would be episode one the -hmm. (laughs) the episode four um with the metro was that one you guys considered doing uh this this session at or is a different type of vibe uh i think the metro would be too big for Mm. it oh okay yeah that makes sense because it being a video shoot doesn't like, right. It just it matter. seemed like the, these kind of video shoots would work better in a more intimate club. And sonically, the room being that big. Um, yeah, recording wise. If there's be... nobody, if there's nobody in the room, then the sound's gonna bounce around and it's gonna like sound like you're playing in a cavern or something. So, cool, awesome, Josh. Well, hey, thank you so much for uh, taking time to chat with me. Um, Hey, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And I like appreciate your uh, support and your interest in the music that we're making. And uh, I'm just kind of excited to be um, to be able to say that I'm releasing two full length albums in the same year. Yeah, that's badass. (laughs) That's super badass. Never, never done that before. 